0: Welcome to Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, during the Great Revolutionary War, where the United States of America won its independence from Great Britain, a turning point of sorts occurred in 1777 when the British invaded and burned the city of Danbury, Connecticut. The story of how this helped turn the war is not so well understood. There's a fair number of details, so we're going to do this in two parts. Here in part one to help me explain the significance of this event is Danbury historian Bill Devlin, author of We Crown Them All and Danbury's Third Century. So now part one of The Weekend, The British Burned Danbury. <laughs> Anybody who's alive today in the United States hasn't experienced war on American soil. Now, it's true that the events of 9-11 were an attack on U.S. soil. However, just like Pearl Harbor, they represented one-day attacks by air, not a sustained ground military campaign. The last time a real war happened on U.S. territory was the Civil War in the 1860s, and that was 155 years ago. Now, there were also the French and Indian War, the Spanish-American War, and the War of 1812. And before that, it was the seven-year-long Revolutionary War. That's the one where patriots fought loyalists to the British crown, known as Tories, and eventually the British Army itself, the so-called Redcoats. That was the war that resulted in the U.S. having its own country. As in all wars, there are certain battles that have a profound impact on the eventual outcome one way or another. The attack on Danbury, Connecticut, and the subsequent response at the Battle of Ridgefield marks such a turning point in the Revolutionary War. Now, it wasn't significant because of the human toll, which was fairly significant, or the taking of strategic territory. No, what happened in Danbury and Ridgefield in April of 1777 was significant because it showed the British the resolve of the American patriots. When the attack on Danbury happened, the Revolutionary War was still relatively in its early stages. If you look back over the three-year trend line of major events that led up to U.S. independence, which all began in Boston and spread from there, it was December of 1773 when the patriots dumped the tea in Boston Harbor to protest British taxation. Well, that was an outgrowth of the famous phrase, Taxation without representation is tyranny. The actual fighting, though, began a year and a half after that, in April of 1775. That's when British troops confronted the Minutemen, north of Boston at the Battle of Lexington and Concord. That's where the phrase was coined, The Shot Heard Round the World. Two months after that, in June of 1775, it was the Battle of Bunker Hill in Boston, And that one gave us the phrase, don't shoot till you see the whites of their eyes. It was a year after that, even on July 4th, 1776, when the Continental Congress finally passed the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia. William Howe was the commander in chief of the British Army, and his task was to put down this uprising by American patriots before it got out of control. His next step, a month after the colonies declared their independence, was to take New York City, and he needed somebody to govern the state of New York. Howe turned to one of his toughest soldiers. It was a man who had led the British efforts in North Carolina, General William Tryon. Howe had looked admirably upon Tryon's track record in North Carolina. In particular, Howe liked the way that Tryon had handled the uprising against the regulators. They were a group of farmers who were incensed about British corruption and took on the British. Well, Bill Devlin, a historian who specializes in dampering, says Tryon came with a reputation. This guy's not a guy you really want to mess with too much. Why? Well, it turns out that he was fairly merciless when he came to dealing with challenges to British authority. For example, with the regulators, mere victory wasn't enough.
1: What did he do afterwards? He burned their fields at the end of the battle he took seven of the leaders and just one of me just hanged the same day six of me hanged the next day no trial no nothing so this was the kind of guy and then he built himself a palace Tryon's palace still stands in north carolina
0: before Tryon could even start his duties the british needed to deal with general george washington whose troops were in new york city In August of 1776, just a month after the Declaration of Independence was read aloud in the 13 colonies, the British conducted a massive invasion and took New York City for their own. Washington's troops had to evacuate to Morristown, New Jersey. Well, during the military action, Bill says that Tryon had to wait to start his new duties.
1: So here's this very proud guy, this very, you know, intemperate, hot-headed guy in a way. He's sitting on a boat for for months because he can't get the appointment that he has been given.
0: Finally, Commander Howe brings in his overwhelming force and pushes George Washington's troops out of New York and back to Morristown. General Tryon could now have his command. Eight months later, the British had to go in one of two directions from New York. The first option was head north up the Hudson River, cutting off New England from the rest of the colonial army. The second option was head south to Philadelphia, which was the Patriots' capital at that point, fighting Washington's troops in New Jersey along the way. Well, Bill says that Commander Howe had to make a decision and decided to at least signal his intentions to move north.
1: He authorizes some, what he calls, distractions. So these are little side raids. The month before Danbury's burned, there's a raid on Peekskill, New York. And
0: then it was time for Danbury. Danbury was a prime target because George Washington had established it as a major military supply depot. Danbury could supply the Continental Forces. Those forces were in Morristown, of course, and also on the other side of the Hudson River in Newburgh, New York. Danbury was stocking everything from food and gunpowder to hospital supplies, so cutting off Danbury would weaken the troops in Newburgh and further south in New Jersey. Danbury was in a relatively safe location, inland and away from the menacing and superior British fleets. The colonial army, remember, had no navy. British ships were free, therefore, to head wherever they wanted. They routinely sailed along the Connecticut coastline, carrying out attacks on towns like Fairfield, Greenwich, and Norwalk. Well, given his past track record, assigning the 52-year-old Tryon to raid Danbury made perfect sense to Commander Howe.
1: Tryon is like almost the perfect villain. He's the kind of, hes the kind of British officer who, you know, is there, as Leach said, to, to teach him a lesson.
0: Well, it turns out Danbury was more than just a supply depot. City residents were early backers of the revolutionary movement. In fact, Bill says a large portion of them went far beyond the call for independence.
1: One group passed a resolution Um, actually condemning slavery and, 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 you know, saying how hypocritical it was for Americans to be talking, criticizing the British for impinging on their freedoms when they were holding slaves. And Bill notes that it wasn't necessarily so
0: easy to tell who was with the British, the Tories, and who was with the Patriots, the Whigs, at least not on the surface because most everybody was British.
1: You're looking at people who are organizing militia companies and, and issuing declarations of independence and stuff, you're just looking at a bunch of people committing treason to some folks. And then other folks are thinking, well, you know, there's reasons why we're doing this. We're maybe British subjects, but British subjects have rights. And, you know, there's we are the equals of these people who are from the other side telling us what to do, but they're not treating us like that. So Howe gave Tryon
0: his orders. Go inland to Danbury and take out the supply depot. Howe gave him 2,000 soldiers and a dozen ships to carry out this task. They set sail on Thursday night, April 24th, 1777 from New York City and made their way up Long Island Sound. Early the next morning, Friday, April 25th, the fleet passed an observation point in Norwalk. Nobody knew exactly where they were headed, just that it was a huge assembly of ships. At a place called Campo Beach, they dropped anchor. Campo Beach today is part of Westport, but in those days, it was part of the very large town of Fairfield. Now, it was about four o'clock that Friday afternoon. and When they arrived, they were met by 300 Tory sympathizers people who knew the lay of the land and could be trusted to lead Tryon and his troops along the inland dirt roads to Danbury. In fact, two Danbury natives, Stephen Jarvis and Eli Benedict, were among the primary guides. There were, of course, also patriots nearby who were observing. They started to spread the word with one resident heading to Danbury to tell Colonel Joseph Cook all about it. Cook, you see, ran a regiment of just a hundred men who were charged with keeping Danbury safe. Now, nobody at this point knew for certain what the British mission was. They only knew that they meant business. Other messengers made their way to New Haven, where Generals David Worcester and, yes, Benedict Arnold were located. Worcester and Arnold immediately sprang into action. But New Haven was some distance, and it would take some time to get from New Haven County to Fairfield County and engage the enemy. Almost immediately, though, the Patriots let the British know that they were not going to have a free ride. The British had just gotten about three miles inland, marching in the early moonlight. On the side of the road in the woods was a team of patriots known as Captain Disbrow's Gallant 17. They had positioned themselves behind stone walls and trees. They called out to the British, who goes there? The response, you will know soon enough. With that, the Gallant 17 opened fire, killing and wounding a number of British soldiers British had to use several ox carts to carry their casualties back to their vessels off Campo Beach. A few more miles up the road in Weston, the British troops set up camp for the night. The next morning, Saturday morning, April 26th, the Redcoats went further inland, arriving in Reading. They were following modern-day Route 58 on that journey north. They stopped at Christ Church, which is located at the intersection of Route 58 and Cross Highway, It was an Anglican church, patterned after the Church of England. Therefore, it was a gathering spot for local Tories or British sympathizers, who were very outnumbered by the rebel patriots at that time in Reading. Well, Tryon's reputation had preceded him, because not only was he known for his ruthless handling of the Regulators' uprising, but he was known to have no mercy for women and children, children being those who would soon enough grow into rebels. Well, as word spread about the pending British attack, many mothers in Reading escaped with their children to a section of town that just coincidentally happened to share the same name as a future iconic site during the Revolutionary War, Valley Forge. One of the Tories from Reading, Ephraim de Forest, a shoemaker and a tanner, told Tryon who were the Tories in town and who were the Patriots. The British took their first three prisoners while in Reading. A lieutenant in the Colonial Army, Stephen Betts, whose house was near the church where they had stopped, was captured. So were James Rogers, another prominent patriot, and Jeremiah Sanford, a 10-year-old boy. Well, the two adults, Betts and Rogers, would be released when the British returned to their ships at Campo Bay. However, young Jeremiah Sanford was placed on the prison ship to return to New York City. He died in transits. As the troops were resting in reading, a horseman suddenly appeared on the horizon. Turns out he was a scout working on behalf of Colonel Cook up in Danbury. The scouts saw the huge mass of 2,000 redcoats, turned his horse, and started to ride away. But he was shot and wounded. In an uncharacteristic act of charity, Tryon didn't have the scout executed. Instead, he allowed doctors to tend to his wounds. In a tiny footnote to this story one of the British troops actually deserted the Redcoats at this point in time. A man who came to be known locally as Uncle Barney Keeler found a local woman and stayed, married her, and moved into the Umpawog Hill section of town. Well, by early Saturday afternoon, the British were in Bethel at Hoyts Hill. And again, a horseman appeared on the horizon. His name was Luther Holcomb. Now, Luther held either a hat or a sword in the air, and he turned his head and started yelling to those behind him, HALT THE WHOLE UNIVERSE! BREAK OFF MY KINGDOMS! The British were momentarily concerned that a huge force awaited them on the other side of the hill. Well, it turns out that Luther was bluffing. Seeing the large British contingent, he turned and galloped away back to Colonel Cook and the 100-man regiment in Danbury. Well, that regiment was clearing out as many supplies as possible in advance of the British force. There was simply too much to move in a short period of time, though. In fact, many of the townspeople were packing up and leaving for safer locations. By then, Saturday afternoon, Generals Worcester and Arnold had made their way from New Haven to Reading. There they met up with General Gold Silliman, a Fairfield resident who was in charge of the colonial forces in Lower Fairfield County. Silliman had managed to gather 500 soldiers— but many of them were older men and younger teenagers. However, they had reached Reading by Saturday morning. Now, while Worcester, Arnold, and Silliman were meeting up in Reading, Tryon and his troops were marching from Bethel into Danbury along modern-day Route 53. In those days, Danbury was a town, not really a city. The bulk of the population was located along a roughly two-mile stretch of Route 53 between South Street and White Streets, Bill Devlin says that the people of Danbury had gotten the word about the advancing troops. In one case, a family escaped to New Milford by wagon with their daughter.
1: This little kid, who was um, a little girl, who was shipped out of town in a in a little trunk, and the museum has the trunk. And he says
0: community leaders were taking precautions with their possessions.
1: The leading merchant of the town time was John McLean, who supposedly buried a lot of his stuff in a well. His, you know, silver and valuables. At around 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon,
0: the British arrived in Danbury. What they did when they got there, how Mother Nature let her presence be felt, and the lessons learned from this incident are all upcoming in Part 2. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, Danbury historian Bill Devlin, author of We Crown Them All and Danbury's Third Century. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also in between episodes, please check out my pages on Facebook at Amazing Tales CT. And you can see some of the photos that supplement my podcasts. Plus, I'd love to hear from you, and you can always send me an idea of a story you'd like me to look into. If you liked what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC.